you have your scriptures, turn to Genesis chapter 17. We are continuing the story of Abraham uh, as we walk through the journey of our faith. And we've been talking about Abraham for some months. And in that, we're into a reality of a covenant. The purpose of God but loving and befriending Abraham is that Abraham will be the father of God's people. And so in Genesis chapter 12, he makes a covenant with him. And he says, I am coming to you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great that you would be a blessing to others. In Genesis 15, he says, your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars. And so God, through this relationship with Abraham for 24 years, has been telling Abraham, hey, listen, there's going to come a moment, uh, a moment where we're going to begin that covenant to pass. And we're right here at the cusp of that moment in Genesis chapter 17. And so as God has promised him to be the descendant, you and your wife, Sarai, they're going to, you're going to have children. And in that, the descendants will go as far and as numerous as the stars. And so he's been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And last week, we walked through the process where Abram takes matters into his own hands. If you have your scripture, I'm actually going to look at Genesis 16, verse 16. Verse 15, I'm sorry. And Abraham bore... And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abraham, Abram called that name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. So there's a, there's a time reality here between chapter 16 and chapter 17 that is very important because Abram takes matters into his own hands. Rather than waiting on God, he decides he's going to accomplish what God thinks God told him to do in being a descendant of many nations his own way. I don't know about you, but it doesn't work well when I don't wait on God when I take matters into my own hands. And so instead of waiting for Sarai to give birth to a child, he takes Hagar to be his wife, and there they have Ishmael. If you ever get to a place where you think you know more than God, you're in trouble. If you ever get to a place where you're not going to wait on God, you're in trouble. If you ever get to a place where you think you know more than God, you are certainly in trouble. When I fly and I feel like we're sitting on the tarmac too long, I don't get up and go down the aisle and knock on that door of the cockpit and tell the captain to get out of his seat because I know how to fly the plane. I don't do that. If I did, I probably would be arrested for that. The reason I don't do that is because I don't have a pilot's license. I'm certainly the last person who needs to be flying the plane. And the same is true when it comes to what God tells us as believers to do. We are the last people to be in control, yet all too often we choose not to wait on God. And so that's what happened with Abram. And between chapter 16 and chapter 17, there's 13 years where God doesn't say a word to Abram. 13 years is a long time to experience a silent treatment. You ever experienced a silent treatment with your friend or your family or your spouse? And, and you walk into a room and, and all seems right until you, you ask a question and there's no response. And then you ask another question and there's still no response. And then there's a moment where you're like, oh no, what have I forgotten to do? Or what did I do? Why, why do I have the silent treatment? 
And there are moments in my life where I've experienced the silent treatment, but nothing like for 13 years. And so Abram didn't wait on God. God loved Abram, but Abram was impatient. And so he took matters into his own hands. And there comes 13 years where God doesn't speak to Abram. And silent treatment is the worst. But God, in his great mercy, looks beyond Abram's failures and comes to him and appears to him and then begins to speak into him. Today's message is ending the silent treatment, recovering from mission failure. You think a lot of times, I think in our life, when we experience failure before God, we feel that as if he is silent to us. Our prayers aren't getting anywhere. We're not hearing from God. And it could very well have been, just like Abram, God has told us to do something, yet we have taken matters into our own hands. We are not patient with God. And so God is waiting on us to recover from that mission failure. How do we do that? Well, I think there's a little formula here in Genesis 17 that Abram experienced that we too can apply today on how we can recover from our own failures and ending the silent treatment, if you will, from the Lord to us. A couple of things I would say to this. Uh, Number one, God calls Abram to be blameless. God calls Abram to be blameless. Let's read this text so that we can kind of understand where we're going in the story of Abram, starting in verse 1 through verse 8. The scripture says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his faith and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will, be, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So after 13 years of silence, God speaks to Abram, and he identifies himself in two ways. Here it's recorded, I am God Almighty. And there, there are two names for God in that phrase. The I am, the Yahweh, the unexpressible reality of who God is and his holiness and his majesty. It's unparalleled. So as God speaks to Abram after 13 years, the first thing he says is, I am all things. I am Lord. The second phrase he uses there is El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai speaks of God being all-powerful, absolutely sovereign. His name speaks of God's sufficiency. There is no one like him. He supplies all needs. He satisfies all needs. He is provider. 48 times in the scripture, El Shaddai is used. And here he reminds Abram that he is Yahweh to be worshiped and the provider of all things. I am God Almighty. And so Abram's response to that in verse 3 is he falls on his face. It's an appropriate response. After 13 years, you don't hear from God. And then as God speaks to you, it's not, hey, Abram, how's it going? 
It's reminding him of his authority over Abram. It's a reminder of his authority over all of the universe. It's a reminder of his greatness and his power. And then throughout this text, God reminds Abram of his authority in a couple of unique ways. Five times, God tells Abram, I will. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. I will make my covenant. I will give you the land that you're living in. I, I will be the God over all the land and over all the people. I will, I will, I will, I will. And so right at the beginning of reestablishing this relationship, God is reminding Abraham, listen, you may think you take matters into your own hands, but I am still in control. I will do these things. And so it's to remind Abram that God will do these things, he changes his name. Abram means high father. Abraham literally means a father of multitudes. And so no longer are you Abram now to remind you that I will do all of these things. I'm going to change your identity so that if anyone calls you by name, you'll be reminded that you're going to be a father of multitudes. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone going to you and says, your name is now this? And the reason it's going to be this is because I'm, I'm setting you up to be thoughtful and prayerful about your purpose in life that hasn't happened. But after it happens, you're going to be reminded that I'm the one who did that work. And that's exactly what's happening with Abraham. God is calling Abraham to a reality of faithful and trust and an idea that I'm going to accomplish my promises. And then after God begins to do that. Every time someone calls his name, it's a reminder that God did the work, not Abraham. He's the one who made him a father of multitudes. So the gravity of what's taking place is that God is speaking back to, to Abram. Now Abraham, after 13 years of silence, and then what does he say? Back to verse 1. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. Literally means to have regards of me, to act with me in mind, to, to walk with God, is to have community with God, that you're living your life inside the, the context of what God desires, what God wants. You're trying to honor God in the way that you live. And there are two men prior to Abraham that walk with God in Enoch and Noah. And that's exactly what God desires for Abram as well, that you would walk with me, walk in the presence of me, to be, honor me in this relationship. And so here God calls Abram to walk before him. And in, this, in an, a reality, to come back into this relationship. It, it might have been said that as you walked away from me to accomplish my plan your way with Hagar, I'm calling you back into relationship. Now walk with me in mind. And then he says to be blameless, literally unscathed by sin. Literally means to, be, to not have any blemish in, in your life, to, to live without even the idea of sin. So walk with me and then without sin, God provides the results of obeying these commands. These two commands. What are the results? I will multiply you greatly at the end of verse 2. I will multiply you greatly and I will multiply your descendants is what God says. So here we see Abram's behavior determines Abram's future. 
If you walk with me, God says, I will walk with you and I will fulfill my promises. But if you don't walk with me, then I will be silent and I cannot fulfill my promises that I have for you. It, it seems simple enough that if we are, are sitting in our chairs this morning or at home this morning and we're wanting to be used by God, yet we're, we're feeling that we're not being used by God, could it be that we need to understand that being blameless helps us be useful? That God's desire for us is to walk with him in mind. Could it be? we be guilty of doing our own thing our own way, being impatient, ignoring the Lord, trying to accomplish his purpose our way. You know, often we can be guilty of saying, yes, God, but there are strings attached. And I think God just wants our yes. Doesn't want our strings. The psalmist calls it this way in Psalm 24, speaking of those who might be with God, commune with God, yet they have to be walking in a purity to be able to have that kind of relationship. Psalm 24, verses three through five says, "'Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, "'and who shall stand in his holy place? "'He who has clean hands and a pure heart, "'and who does not lift up his soul to what is false "'or does not swear deceitfully, "'he will receive blessing from the Lord "'and righteousness from God of his salvation.'" So Abram comes to this idea that God's called him back into relationship God Almighty is calling me to walk before him and to be blameless, that I would be in obedience. And God is setting Abram up for an act of obedience that will require faithfulness, not only in the here and now, but faithfulness for all of his descendants. And he's calling Abram to participate in the sign of the covenant, which we know here in Genesis 17 as circumcision. Read with me in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you must be circumcised. So God does a, a little switcheroo here. The beginning of this passage, he says, I will do these things five times. I will, I will, I will, I will. In verse nine, he goes to Abraham and he says, now you will. And so he calls Abraham to an act of present obedience. And so the obedience here to fulfill the covenant is circumcision. In Genesis 17, it signified, the circumcision signified a spiritual allegiance to God, a loyalty, a commitment to Jehovah. And it goes on throughout this passage to describe those who, who may not walk in that obedience. And if you chose not to walk in that obedience to circumcision, then you were expelled from God's people. You see, circumcision was a sign. It was not the essence of the covenant. The essence of the covenant was loyalty to God was loyalty that God will be their God and he will govern the people. It, it's a mark on the body to symbolize a commitment of faithfulness and allegiance. Now, now the rest of scripture, as we read throughout not only the Old Testament, but then also new, speaks of a reality of, of spiritual circumcision. To cut away sin 
from one's heart and mind. To not live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. So as we see all of Scripture in 2023, realizing that helps us understand what's happening here in Genesis 17. Moses calls the people to circumcise their hearts in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. God is calling us to a blameless lifestyle, to cut away the sin in our life that we might be used by him. Paul says it a little differently in Romans chapter 2, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. Philippians chapter 3, Paul continues. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. God uses people like Moses and people like Paul to remind us that our confidence is in the Lord, not in our own ability, that we're called to move away from the sin of our heart, that we could be used by the Lord. So the idea of walking blamelessly with God was not only how Abraham fulfilled his part of the covenant, but it's how we fulfill our part with him today. The question for you this morning might be this, are you walking with God? or away from God? Has God called you to be blameless? Can you identify with that this morning? Or, or you might think, you know, I've got some spots of sin on my life that I need to remove, that God's calling me to a greater way. And so maybe those realities of sin might be relationships. It might be at work or school. It might be something to do with, with a mission reality. It could be how you spend your money or how you spend your time. Are you completely loyal to the Lord this morning? Or have you found yourself walking away from God and not with God? The way we recover from mission failure is to find ourselves walking with the Lord, being blameless. And in that reality, we're removing sin from our life as we see that happening here in Genesis 17. Secondly, we see God call Abram to believe. He not only calls him to be blameless, but he calls him to belief. Picking up the story in verse 15, Scripture says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah. And she shall be, that shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God is a God of doing the impossible. And, and we see that reality beginning to shape up right here. Often we forget that God is about the work of doing things that don't make sense. God accomplishes things far too incredible for us to ever put limits on him. 
Jeremiah 32, 17, Jeremiah says it this way, O Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Our God can accomplish anything. Jesus in Mark 27 says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And so in verse 16, God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son by Sarah. God will bless her and God will use her and nations shall come from her. She will be a mother to kings. And so it's the second time that Abraham falls on his face. Well, I think he falls on his face out of worship, but then what does he begin to do? He begins to snicker. He begins to laugh. He begins to try to put his logic on top of God's plan, and it seems impossible to him. The idea that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman would be able to conceive how impossible that must have seemed. And Abraham's first thought was the son that he already had, the son Ishmael. God, would you would you bless him? It was kind of a counter proposal back to the Lord, which makes sense, but God had greater plans. So God used that to remind Abraham that he was going to use Sarah. And out of that would come a name, Isaac. You know, God changes names yet again here, changes Abram's name to Abraham. Now he's changing Sarah's name. And then he's going to name the first descendant of both Abraham and Sarah, and it's going to be Isaac. What's interesting about that is you ever, you ever had a nickname in your life? Some of you aren't really proud of the nickname that you've been given, and that's okay. We'll have a little uh, counseling session later. That'll be fine. Um, my wife calls me Miller. Um, it's not because she doesn't love me. We've talked about this before. It's a term of endearment. Sometimes she calls me forgetful. That's really not a nickname. In fact, it's kind of hurtful because I do forget a lot, and she just reminds me of things that I forget all the time about. She calls me lots of things. We call our daughter, uh, whose name is Lily. We call her Lulu. That doesn't make sense. I don't know why we call her Lulu. Uh, sometimes we call her Lulubelle. You should call her Lulubelle today. She'll love that. Um, we don't necessarily why that is the way it is. I had a high school friend that his nickname did make sense. He was 6'7", probably 290 pounds. Um, he played defensive line for our high school. His name was House. The coach would ask, what did you have for dinner? He said, chicken, and then he would say, how many? His name was House. That made sense. Sarah's name now makes sense. It means princess. She will become the mother of kings. God does the impossible. And for us to be used by the Lord, we must come to a place of belief that he can do the impossible. I think so often we know about God, we're reminded of God, we read about God, but sometimes our faith wanes. Can God really do that? Will God really do that? And so we struggle in the waiting, just like Abram, Abram struggled in the waiting. We struggle waiting on God, waiting on God, waiting on God. And it could be that this morning you've been praying for a family member for years and years and years and years, and you're struggling to believe that God will accomplish his promises. Could be that you're in a situation that just seems hopeless and endless, and so your faith is waning. For us to be used by the Lord, there's a, there's a reality and a, and a call for us to believe. What are you laughing at with God today? 
when God has given you a clear directive or instruction or a promise, and in our heart you may think, that's fine, but I'm snickering at that idea. There's no way God's going to do that. Can you this morning be honest with the Lord and say, you know, God, I, I think I've been laughing at you about this area, this thing, this worry, this anxiety. And I feel like you're calling me to, a, to another level of belief. And that's exactly what God's doing with Abraham. He's changing the name of his wife. He's calling out the name of his firstborn. He is pushing Abraham into this reality. It hasn't happened yet. Could it be that this morning, this might be a marker for you where God's reminding you to believe, to believe in his promises, to believe that he will accomplish and can accomplish anything. In your life, you may find yourself blowing off God in disbelief. I just want to challenge us this morning. I've been challenged over the last couple of weeks as I've been kind of reading through this passage that my lack of believing God and his promises keeps me from being used by him. So let us be challenged to believe and believe deeply that he can accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. Lastly, this morning, for us to overcome our mission failure, just like God moves Abraham, he can move us. God calls Abram to being bound, to the idea of being bound. Abram, now Abraham, is bound to a sense of obedience. Let's read this in verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those who were born of his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised their flesh. What God is calling Abraham to is, a, is an immediate obedience. So as soon as God leaves, Abraham immediately follows the instructions of the Lord. And the instructions were that you, Abraham, take all of your descendants who were male, those that were born to you, those that were bought, and you will be circumcised this day. And it's exactly what Abraham does. He moves into an obedience. He's bound to obedience. And I believe that he's bound to that obedience because he is at a crisis of belief. In my life, when I believe, I act. And that's exactly what's happening here with Abraham. When I disbelieve or when I don't fully believe, then I'm slow to act. Or maybe I don't act at all. Abraham is bound to a reality of obedience. And I think there really isn't any choice when it comes to a believer. When God calls us, it's not a choice to obey. It's a, it's a moment to obey. I think so often we find ourselves living in a culture that is choice-centric. We've got all kinds of choices all the time, all around us. We, we choose everything from our banks to our cars to the food that we're going to eat to the places we're going to go. We have all of these choices. When you go online and, and you begin to look at certain things, it's not just one opportunity or, or two opportunities. It's 25 different things that you can choose from in just about every area of your life. I experienced this this last summer with my oldest who came home from college and he wanted coffee. So we go to Starbucks and he, it's not just coffee for a college kid. You know, it's not just, I need a cup of coffee. So you go to Starbucks, it's a venti ice, skinny, hazelnut, macchiato, sugar-free syrup, and extra shot light ice. That kind of choice is made. And I don't know how to say that very quickly. I had to write it down because I get nervous when I go to the coffee counter and I just want, I just want a coffee. 
I don't, I don't believe that Christianity is, is a culture of choice. I think it should be better a culture of obedience. And the question I asked myself this week, and maybe the question I ask you is, when did obedience become an option? Because when we say it's an option, as if we don't really have to do that. And we see in Abram's life, man, immediately he goes. Immediately he's called out. Immediately he's going to obey, and it's going to cost him. It's not going to be a fun obedience, but yet he goes anyway, and he brings all of those that will do that with him because God instructed him to. For Abraham, obedience is not an option. He's bound to it. Has God called you to do something, yet you've approached it like obedience is an option? It's just a choice. God has called us. We as believers ought to be bound to obedience to accomplish his mission and his purpose. In Acts chapter 4, we'll close with this. Peter and John are arrested for teaching and proclaiming Jesus. And so the religious counselor grab them. They arrest them. They keep them overnight. The next day they're in front of the council. Verse 18 of Acts chapter 4. So the religious council called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, what is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That doesn't sound like a choice to me. They're bound to it. They're compelled by it. Their convictions are leading them into obedience. This morning, to recover from mission failure, to participate in God's mission, to be used by him requires that we live bound to that obedience. That if God calls us, we go. If God says this, we do that. What a challenge for us this morning because as you continue this series with us into Genesis 18, you're going to see Abraham is able to recover from mission failure. And as such, God's covenant promises come true. What could God do in your life if you found yourself being blameless, believing, and being bound to obedience?